you're here for uh, Michael Towsig. This is Nick Towsig. It's really a great uh, excitement and honor uh, to have him here. He is the class of 1933, a uh, professor of anthropology at Columbia University. Um, and he's here as also as part of the Dissolve Inequality uh, series. Um, and Dissolve, some of you may know, is a project uh, that we started up here as a, as a counter idea to the Solve uh, conference, which as you may know, brought many rich people here to uh, figure out how to solve the world's problems. And some of us said, well, you're not going to solve anything until you dissolve uh, the structures of inequality uh, that are keeping things in place. Uh, and how can we fight these systems of inequality in terms of gender, racial, economic, and other inequalities as well? Uh, Dissolve is really focused on bottom-up solutions, uh, aiming for a more democratic, even anarchic, uh, approaches to change. Uh, and we like to mix together scholarship, activism, and art. Uh, we're aiming for a Dissolve 2.0 uh, conference uh, probably about a year from now, next uh, February, is what we're planning, uh, to build on the unconference we had uh, in fall of last year. And also, we had a music summit, a Dissolve Inequality Music Summit, a few weeks ago. Uh, so we're looking for people to participate, uh, so please get in touch with me uh, if you have any interest in that. Uh, I think the idea of Dissolve uh, is quite relevant uh, to a lot of Mick Tausig's work. Uh, some of his earliest work, uh, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, The Devil and Commodity Fetishism in South America, for example, really points to the ways that people living on the periphery of the world capitalist economy have a critical vantage point, uh, and particularly focused on the transition from peasant labor to wage labor, and how the image of the devil uh, offered a way to talk about this transition and, and really highlight things uh, that have become naturalized to us, uh, dynamics and, um, uh, and, and inequalities that we've come to perceive as just the way uh, the world works. Um, and you know, I was, I was reading this material again recently, and, and thinking about some of the ways we're in a similar transition now, perhaps, maybe we're always uh, in a position of transition, uh, but there's ways in which there is new attention uh, to the shortcomings of capitalism, uh, to the ways it's producing more inequality, not less inequality. And that this idea that the rising economy would lift all boats, it's just not true. Uh, and now we have the data and, and some of the understanding of what's bringing that about. Uh, and especially at a time when disruption uh, is sort of a key word for economics, for politics, for society, uh, and yet raised to a level of value, as if disruption is a good thing, uh, as if disruption is the only way of the world, and we just have to accept these disruptions, whether they're in the form of a gig economy, uh, a sharing economy, a peer economy, whatever economy it is, it's one that's continuing to remake uh, on a social contract uh, between the capital holders and labor. Uh, and so I think a lot of the kinds of naturalizations that we see in, uh, in mixed work that unravel those naturalizations are incredibly relevant today. Mixed work also draws attention to uh, the ways that the rhythms of language, uh, the words, uh, the poetry of ethnography and of writing uh, it's intimately connected to its critical force. Uh, and I think this is very important. Uh, I think we spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time, 
trying to work on ideas. What's the analytical potential? What are the topics? What are the theorists I want to employ? And perhaps don't spend enough time thinking about writing and, and the power of language and the importance of finding words uh, to express things in ways that, that do defamiliarize the familiar, make the familiar strange and the strange familiar. Uh, and I really love that about Vitalik's uh, work uh, in this emphasis on ethnography as writing, a form of poetry, uh, a way of using uh, the fairy tale potential, the fictional potential of writing uh, to open up uh, new understandings of the world. He's written many books. Uh, let me highlight a few of them. I mentioned The Devil and Commodity Fetishism. Shamanism, Colonialism, and the Wild Man, 1987, The Nervous System, a collection of essays from 1992, My Nieces and Alterity, 1993, The Magic of the State, 1997, Defacement, Public Secrecy and the Labor of the Negative, 1999, uh, My Cocaine Museum, a spectacular work that came out in 2004, Walter Benjamin's Grave, 2006, What Color is Sacred, 2009, uh, and I swear I saw this, <laughs> I, love the title. I swear I saw this, uh, drawings in fieldwork notebooks, namely my own, 2011. Uh, and I just, to end this introduction, I'd just like to say a few words about uh, his most recent book, Beauty and the Beast, uh, which came out in 2012. Uh, he starts out the book with this lovely, lovely uh, idea. He says, Beauty and the Beast poses the question of beauty in relation to, to violence. I'm wondering why so many stories in Colombia about cosmetic surgery, which the author calls cosmic surgery, take delight in the death or disfigurement of the patient. For what is, for what is involved is not simply the coexistence of glamour and terror in the world around us, but their synergism. If therefore, I'm, using, I'm talking in, in mixed words here, if therefore, I choose to write about this in a fairy tale mode. It is to heighten, not diminish, reality, as well as its aesthetic surge. For is there not a powerful aesthetic at the heart of terror? And he answers the quote, or he says, he uses this quote as well. He says, Beauty is always doomed, writes William Burroughs. And Towson asks, Is that why it shimmers so? Please join me in welcoming Nick Towson. For others, it is carnival time, 
building on forces generated Friday night. Although things are changing in this regard. In London, young Michael Harding tells me Thursday night is the new Friday night, and I've heard this from waiters in New York City as well. How does this happen? Do our sociologists study this sort of thing? And what sort of thing is it? Anyway, does it belong to fashion? Or does it belong to energy? Or both? Because young Michael alternates between being super social and misanthropic, I think he is in a good position to assess the meaning of social energy. Locked in a caravan on Hampstead Heath, reading and writing plays, then going out on the town, he is a sensitive judge of the wave, perfecting the anthropological strategy of participant observation. One moment all in, next moment standing back, watching. In any event, this wave of energy is not a meaning, nor is it an affect. It is all that and none of that, and something more. As early fall, the grasses recede, the squirrels gather acorns, and the bonds tighten between my body, your body, and the body of the world. Baruch Spinoza steps lightly on the grass, chatting with Mrs. Dalloway about the latest Deleuze and Guattari book, and wondering about the return of the dead, flying in great packs overhead while she keeps a sharp eye out for sorcerers strolling on the heath, pursuing their lines of flight. She survived, Peter survived, she muses, lived in each other, she being part, she was positive of the trees at home, she, of the houses there, ugly, rambling, all to bits and pieces, as it was, part of the people she had never met, being laid out like a mist between the people she knew best, who lifted her on branches as she had seen the trees lift the mist, but it spread ever so far, her life, herself. Emile Durkheim had a memorable phrase for the energy emitted by the collective, as on Saturday mornings, like this one, which he first applied to what he called elementary forms of religious life, as he learned about such from an ethnography of the native tribes of Central Australia. He regarded the secret sacred rituals therein as effervescent instances of society worshipping itself. But what I have in mind here Saturday morning is somewhat less formal and somewhat inchoate, what Michel Larisse in his College of Sociology days called the sacred in everyday life. An issue here is whether certain social forms, events, and communications can create a surplus of energy and what happens to that surplus. In, 1990, in 1902, a decade before Durkheim's famous book on religion, Henri and Marcel Mauss wrote on magic as something whose basis lay in an ether or stream of energy constellated by right, buoyed up by an indefinable sense of the sacred. Appropriating the Melanesian and Polynesian term mana, they were at pains to separate this from the intellectualist approach to magic as something based on ideas in the minds of individuals. Instead, they conceived of magic and mana in an altogether different register, that of the social. 
larger than the sum of its parts, and irreducible, irreducible to mechanistic cause and effect principles or the Socratic logic of ideas. Just as a ritual, a performance, a painting, or a song is irreducible to such principles. As both origin and consequence of the stream of which it is part, mana was conceptualized by Hubert and Maus as the confluence of what they called energy and milieu, such as we feel in a theater, maybe, before the curtain rises, or perhaps during a lecture in a university. Misensene would be a better term than milieu. I want to add to this an observation of my own, that transgressions are likely to make manner spread, setting other manners into action. Today, manner is back on the table, inflating the concept of energy with magic, especially as regards art, which you can think of, art that is, you can think of as a cunning energy trap, like a solar panel. But what then is energy? Surely it is no less a floating signifier than mana, which was thus labelled and disposed of by Claude Lévi-Strauss in his introduction to the collected works of Marcel Moss. Surely energy is what used to be called an umbrella word, or worse still, a portmanteau word, meaning it means any and everything and nothing at all. These then are fluffy words, manner, energy, that nevertheless, nevertheless mean business. Damn useful they be for registering a sense of the human collectivity. Nowhere more obvious in a word energizing than in the work of Joseph Boyce, in whose work fluff is wholly writ. The fluff may be the fabric called felt or fat or honey, these being the materials Boyce uses to make, transmit, and store energy, especially social energy, like my Saturday morning or Saturday night, or Boyce's idea of social sculpture. Energy flows through his work as much as it is the subject of his work, from its beginnings right through to the lemon-like Capri battery he made while mortally ill on the island of Capri. Could we have a first show? This was a yellow light bulb screwed into an electric socket, itself plugged into a lemon. A bright yellow, healthy-looking lemon, about the same size and color as the light bulb. The light glows softly, charged with the energy of the lemon. Who would have thunk it? The light is also charged with fear and warnings as to the vulnerability of nature, which will require much in the way of wit, read, art, in rechanneling the energy flowing from the sun as represented by these two yellow orbs, the softly glowing light bulb and the incongruously congruous lemon. And then there was honeycomb. Text in and then there was Honeypump in the workplace, made for documenter number 6, 1977, with a margarine lubricated machine circulating two tons of honey throughout the 100 days of the exhibit. 
absorbing and distributing the energy generated by the lectures, discussions, and seminars that were happening during the exhibition. Here I am again in Brooklyn, that warm Saturday morning. I feel the sun warm on my skin. I become aware of the noise of the wind in the trees. Great gusts they are. A hurricane is gathering in the Caribbean. I hear a plane overhead, a steady hum with white vacant trails and the blueness of the sky. What is the difference between energy and sensation, I wonder? If we formulate energy as a cause of a sensation and habitually focus on the sensation, what happens to the energy behind it? Is it part of our being, which like a, a, a Joseph Boyce organic art battery of felt and fat stores this energy as memory of its impact, an impact that very much seems beyond meaning in the usual sense of the word? What shift in register occurs if we are to think of the body as an organic art battery? Is that what I mean by the bodily unconscious? which registers the energy field that the magician works on, the field of my body, your body, and the body of the world. What body is that? I return to an old ethnographic work where I read of the people of the South learning songs of sorcery from stones that walk like men. The deadliest song being that of the whitefish, causing slow asphyxiation as the song eats the person's insides, waxing and waning with the movement of the tides, the illness worsens unto death. Omnipotence of thought, says Freud. Poetry of the body, of the bodily unconscious, says I. As to the sun so warm on my skin right now in this our epoch of global meltdown, it gives without receiving, says Bataille, introducing his general economy based on dépense, meaning a wild spending, sometimes glossed as wasting. Depense is a tricky word, an Alice in Wonderland word, for no matter how many synonyms you come up with, and no matter how much we take problems of translation from the French into account, depense resists definition as if on purpose. As if on purpose. It wastes definitional ambition, like the song of the whitefish, eating insides in accord with the tide. Is this before because depense confounds common sense ideas about consumption? For what Bataille was getting at was non-commonsensical, yet common, existing as a subterranean energy flow in all societies and geared towards auto-destructive spending, hence wasting, meaning some sort of sacrifice as well as sacrifice proper. Understanding sacrifice as that which takes you out of yourself and consecrates that which it destroys. This is another way of thinking how things go together, combust together, I guess I should say. A Saturday way of thinking, when the energies of society change direction and intensity. On a rooftop on a brownstone in Brooklyn, you get a great view of the sky of Manhattan. It is sublime up there, a little frightening and certainly disorienting. The world pitches like a ship at sea, but you pretend it's normal. You feel your feet solid on the roof, but the rest of you feels anything but stable. The roofer, however, is oblivious. His back is to Manhattan. But he is thinking a lot about Manhattan, about the skyline. Out of the blue, he asks, and what's going to happen to the World Trade Center? 
What? The Muslims, he replies, now that they're about to let all those Syrians into New York. He is scowling. The view now seems sublime in a different way. A roof in Brooklyn with a leak funnels the energy of fear and hate. That whitefish song again. You see a mana wave oscillating over Manhattan. That was five weeks before the ISIS attack in Paris, November 2015, and long before the mana wave called Trump. At my open-mouthed astonishment at the chaos all around, the owner of the local hardware store that comes from India tells me, it's the Jews, referring to the extraordinary energy alive around us right now in the form of gentrification, tearing down the old and building up the new. He means the Hasidim of Williamsburg. They supply the capital and brokers from Israel do the rest, he assures me. Handsome young black guy nods in agreement. Close to the subway, on the, sh on the shuttered door of the Slave Theatre 1, which has seen better days, there's a handwritten sign in bold black letters. Gentrification equals genocide. This used to be the worst area for violence and crime in the city of New York. You could barely breathe because of the energy there. Negative energy is what they call it, I guess. The young Martin Ingalls in the Communist Manifesto portrayed mid-19th-century capitalism as a whirlwind of energy, of construction and destruction, echoed famously by Joseph Schumpeter a century later, and later still by Marshall Bowman in his book, All That Is Solid, Melts Into Air, which concludes with a chapter on the tearing down of sections of the Bronx, where he grew up, for freeways. The bourgeoisie has a vested interest in destruction, I seem to recall him, citing Marx and Engels. After the manifesto, Marx came up with a formula, C-C prime, meaning capital creating more of itself. Capital is all Saturday, you could say, with now again sudden descents into Sunday afternoons when the energy of the week sinks to an all-time low. The self-generating energy of C-C prime was analyzed by Marx as the result of the institutionalization of labor power as a commodity, understood by Karl Polanyi, mid-20th century, as life itself, meaning, I take it, vitalism. If manna is energy in milieu, as Marx and Hubert wrote, then it is easy enough to apply this to the commodification of labor as labor power which was Marx's term. Labor power is what results from energy, human and non-human, set into the matrix of the market mechanism, providing <coughs> suggestive tropes linking manner to the commodity. The fetishism of commodities, Marx's own phrase, is an outstanding one of these tropes. Max Weber's spirit of capitalism is another. And then there is George Lukács, his idea concerning what he called the phantom quality, phantom quality of objectivity under capitalism, an essay written at the same time that Dada morphed into surrealism. Is manner the phantom in objectivity in the capitalist universe? Is this what defines manner in the modern world? Not its resistance to commodification, but its aloofness. It slips between all categories the floating signifier, after all, changing shape at a whim. If the sun and capital provide examples of self-generating energy, destructive and constructive, as negative, energy, negative sacred force, 
sorry, if the sun and capital are about examples of self-generating energy, destructive and constructive, then what are Jean Genet's accounts of self-generating energy as negative sacred force emitted by abjection, theft, and sexuality? In the Thief's Journal, Genet describes his stealing from a municipal pawn shop with his parent, with his partner, Guy. Locked in a storeroom awaiting nightfall, Guy no longer seemed the ordinary guy you happen upon somewhere or other. I'm quoting now. He was, he was a kind of destroying angel. From within this little, from within this little ferry where, where a hoodlum was confined, there sprang forth a determined and terrifying fellow, ready for anything, primarily murder. He looks at Guy, or Guy, Guy looks at him. Their muscles harden into suits of armor. Energy crackles between them. They are little generators, these two thieves who could be murderers. They are mobile hydroelectric dams, or at least solar panels. And not only are they prepared to kill anyone who finds them, they're prepared to kill each other as well. Think on it. Later we find Chenet on the docks in Antwerp. It is night time. His well-to-do client has dropped his trousers to his ankles and has his back to Genet, who spreads his buttocks but at the moment of penetration tricks his client by tying his hands tight and proceeds to not only rob him of his handsome watch and wallet, but delights in having someone at his mercy in a lavish scene of what Genet aspires to most, namely betrayal. The client whimpers. Genet flashes his knife in the man's face and in his self-consciously authorial manner exclaims to the reader that he wants to tell us with the greatest precision what this moment means to him. Quote, the cruelty into which I was forcing myself gave amazing power, not only to my body, but to my mind. This is a fine example of self-generating energy, this amazing power that is not only body, but mind. And Janine goes on to tell us he committed similar crimes in which I felt myself growing vibrant, mean, icy, stiff, gleaming, cutting, like a sword blade. Energy craves form, but more than that, loves jumping form into transforms we call metamorphoses. Quote, love swoops down on me like a falcon, from which fright I employ the idea of a turtle dove, he says. He feels his neck swell with a gentle cooing, Quote, a curious creature would appear as if each of my emotions became the animal it evokes. Anger rumbles within my cobra neck. The very same cobra swells his prick. Of the turtle dove, he retains only the hoarseness. And so it goes on and on in sheer disregard of entropy, in sheer disregard of entropy and Newton, self-generating energy making more of the same. William Burroughs has a memorable scene where in a boat sailing across a placid lake is propelled by a man standing in the stern, jerking off, the boat being driven forward by ejaculation. Bataille has something similar with the pineal eye which began as the anus journeying to the crown of the head where it explodes with fearful energy ejaculating to the sun. Are we bound to a phallic rendering of energy and art? Is energy male? Surely not, at least not your standard heteronormative. 
The man jerking off in the stern of the sailing boat on the smooth lake, and the man robbing the pawn shop, a preeminently negatively sacred gay man in gay texts, loving the wrong thing, finding glory in the wrong thing. Genet, or doubled over in tongue-in-cheek humour. Burroughs. As for women, are they not the epitome of negative sacred power associated with witchcraft, the horrors of menstruation, the left hand, duplicity, gossip, and of course, the moon? It was, after all, Hebrew Eve who reached the forbidden fruit. It was Greek Pandora who couldn't remain slipping, who couldn't resist slipping the latch. And this is why women are beardless, a great philosopher assures us. Schopenhauer. They don't need a mask, meaning a beard, because they come into the world masked, meaning inherently devious and double-faced. This must be why Hubert and Maus claim that along with the spirits of the dead, women worldwide, or rather the idea of women, is the greatest source of magical energy, thanks to their marginal social status tied to the mysteries of sexuality, childbirth, and menstruation. There is only one other source of magic that, to my mind, compared, com competes with this, and that is the magic of words. <clears throat> and that brings me to Texas and masking, or rather to mooning Texas, as it was this left-handed, gossip-generating witchery that got me thinking about society as enriching itself with a special rising and a falling, bound not only to energy, as with solar panels, but energy is bound to the mask and to that mode of storytelling we call gossip, itself bound to the exuberance of transgression and transmission of the key element in public secrecy, the element of knowing what not to know. <clears throat> As with Nietzsche's gay science, Mooning Texas is imprinted with the spirit of the witch, Barbol, who lifted her skirts to expose herself and made Demeter, grieving the rape of her daughter, laugh. Demeter then drinks the Kiakon, Greek, which some say contains a hallucinogen. The skirt is demurely lowered, the veil resumes its place, and Nietzsche advises sophomoric seekers of wisdom to leave it there. Public secret, rest in peace, until the next time. To give examples is in itself a mode that energizes, an instance of self-generating energy defying Newton and entropy, which again brings me to Mooning, Texas, an outcome of sorcery, shamanism, and teaching anthropology. Let me explain. It began with a swerve away from canonical texts in my teaching anthropology courses in the early 1980s to consider William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying as a way of rethinking teaching about death and specifically the anthropology of death, itself an absurd phrase. The crazy quilt form and incandescent reach of Faulkner's language got to me, combined as it was with crisscrossing interior monologues of family members carrying the mother's corpse 
on a mule-drawn cart through Mississippi to its final resting place. Now that is out of body. This led me to a stint as Professor of Performance Studies and a decade-long love affair with what is known as the avant-garde or European avant-garde, meaning for me data and surrealism, mixed with Marxist aesthetics and mysticism as with Brecht and Benjamin. I craved forms of expression better suited to my life-changing experience in rural Colombia. It was that which made me realize how the social sciences have pretty much one modus operandi, and that is making sense of the social world by giving it a structure. If there is one magic bestowing word, the abracadabra of social science, it has to be this word, structure. Even where it is not in your face apparent, it is there like hot lava, petrifying all in its parts. If ever there was a free-floating signifier, it is that word. It is astonishing, this petrifaction, the way it kills movement and life and manner in the name of enlightenment. More than that, even, it is a conquest designed to show the prowess of the explainer over the corpse of the explained. If not structure, then resort is made to narrative. As with, as with historians, there is a story to be told, yet one which denies, one which denies the art of the storyteller. So, as to come across objective and scientific and not, heaven forbid, be organically embedded as much in that history as in the telling of it. My own experience had been different. I could not but understand reality as splintered open into what I called multiple realities jostling one another with different interpretations and perspectives. In this I saw sucker in William Burroughs' M. Muir, or Magical Universe, while that other safer world of structures started to dim. The M. Muir corresponds to a mode of talk and thought that cannot be separated from that which it concerns with which it is ensnared and which it embraces and jousts till death does us part. This in turn is the result of understanding reality as uneven and surprising. Reality is always, always throws you a curveball and you have to be grateful for that, dark as the vision may be. This I felt with special force on account of the stories of the corpses dumped almost weekly alongside the roads and bridges leading into the agribusiness town where I lived in the interior of Colombia. The same spiraling uncertainties, liftoffs, and chasms were there at the army checkpoints on the southern frontier and were whimsically with the contemporary versions of the origins of the saints that peasants and landless laborers told me about. Another reality and another way of thinking about reality beckoned. For a while I called this Swiss cheese reality, characterized by irregular holes leading to other holes depending on how you slice it. The problem was how to put this in language, or more precisely, find a voice and a form that resonated with it and learned from it. There was a solution, or at least a response to this problem, and that was the shaman's night-long singing in the Putumaya River drainage of Colombia, where for more than 30 years I visited my friend, the healer, Santiago Mutumbohoy. What I drifted into was the wordless hum 
hum, breaking sound into rivulets of corporeal implosion while sobbing bodies became lost in another worldly space of laughter and fear. Like attempts at defining their bombs, it is impossible to adequately describe this tumult as soon as it seems within the grasp of words and what Hegel called the understanding, it evaporates. Poof. This is energy in spades, restless energy, depends on loose. It was as if that singing, that wordless humming, captured the energy of the violence of sorcery and of the counter-guerrilla campaign in the southern provinces, not to mention centuries of racism, the scudding of the moon through luminous clouds, the stomping of the cattle in the corral, and the whimpering of sleeping dogs. Which raises the issue of how you describe music as the river roars and Rosario shaking with brain disease is dying down the road and sees a spirit on her shoulder who looks like me while a white storekeeper thinks his store is bewitched and wants the song sung there but the Indian tells you that in all likelihood it is the bad vibe the store owner is creating floating with the girls in miniskirts attending bar pissing off his wife. This is the same problem of finding words for energy but then maybe the whole point is that there are no words, but what I call temptings, the gap between words and things, widening such that then, right then, those tremendous gunshot sounds erupt from even further down the throat where the belly meets the belly of the world. Crap. All of this took me into considering ways whereby the experiments in language image and performance of the European avant-garde could mesh with such material and enliven, not merely anthropological writing, but our post-1968 lives. My initial forays were through Benjamin and Dada, as in the final sections of his essay on art in the age of mechanical reproduction, which led me to the primitivism in Zurich Dada and into Hugo Ball with his infamous Medicine Man's Act or Magical Bishop performance with Emmy Hennings at the piano in the Cabaret Voltaire in 1916. For me, Hugo Ball's Magical Bishop was a drama back and forth of order and disorder, culminating in what looked like the triumph of the church and order over the futurist breakup of language in sound poetry, of which he was an exponent. This legendary act culminated in Bell Ball's collapse as he fell in a dead faint off the stage into the audience. Shortly thereafter, he left Zurich with Emmy Hennings, wrote a book on angels, and died a few years later in Northern Italy. At least that was the story I lived by. He was a bit of a bolter, said to Eric, uh, answer Rabenibach in his essay on Ball, but then he certainly were tough times. Yet the triumph of the church and order is a bit of an illusion. Actually, Ball was able to finish his sound poem, breaking language up into strange-tongued nonsense syllables, much like the shamans I lived with in Colombia, because at a moment of despair and mental collapse in the performance, according to Emmy Hennings, he heard in his mind the church bells of his native town in Germany, and with this version of order, was able to complete the disorder. 
for me, not only was this grist to my mill, grafting anthropology to European avant-garde primitivism and to the magic therein, but equally to the point was the argument against ordering as intellection and explanation that I later developed in my concept of the nervous system that looped me first as graffiti at a ferry stop in Sydney Harbour when I was writing on the violence of the rubber boom in the Amazon at the turn of the century. Hence, my interest in reenacting the magical mission. I built a costume like Hugo Balls with a blue cardboard tube, tinder floor, pink angel's wings, a folded cardboard, and a medicine man's conical hat. The small group of anthropology students were bewildered, I think. But I felt, I felt the Zurich of 1916 with Lennon looking around the corner from the cabaret Voltaire and the sound of trench warfare audible at night. Marinelli, not far behind. In the early 1980s, I was invited to give a talk to the University of Texas at Austin, and I decided to include a portion of the Magical Bishop Act so as to illustrate my ideas. Because I was unable to fit my costume on the plane, I settled for a brown paper bag over my head with slits for the eyes and the mouth. This bag sequence took up all of three minutes in a talk of approximately 40 minutes. The audience may have been slightly bemused. I don't remember. In fact, I think I might have been disappointed by the lack of reaction. Arriving at Berkeley next day, I was greeted with eye-popping questions. What were you doing with a bag on your head? Why did you give a talk with a bag on your head? I was startled the news, I mean news, traveled so fast, even in that pre-digital age, and even more by the discrepancy between what I thought was a mere flourish and what my questioners thought was a big deal. Around the same time, I was asked by the chair of an academic department to apply for a job. The process dragged on for almost a year, at the end of which the person who invited me to apply called to say that he'd just come from the meeting, the meeting, and could barely talk. He was so depressed and angry. You have many enemies, was his opening remark. <laughs> the committee decided against me, he added, because I gave talks with a bag over my head. <laughs> he refused to tell me who was on the committee and who led the charge. Metaphor, excuse, whatever, but decidedly bad energy. Now, these words, deliberations, committee, and report, referred to behaviours no less bagged head than mine. Without much by way of data, they seem to they exude much by way of secrecy and more to the point of public secrecy as notably existent in this quote, the story of the bagged head, winding its way through the back channels of what makes social life lively. Is this not also an instance of sorcery too we can sacrifice, an example of which René Girard called the scapegoat in his classic book on violence and the sacred? Which brings me to Moon in Texas. 25 years went by, 25 summers and long winters. Ronald Reagan came and went into dementia, as did America, while neoliberalism gripped the globe and George Bush invaded Iraq, setting the world on its course to mayhem in search of fuel to maintain the exuberance of C-C prime. 25 years went by and I was invited back to the University of Texas 
<laughs> to give a talk. This time I brought no bag. As I waited for the audience to settle, a smiling woman professor welcomed me back, saying, how well she recalled my previous talk when I moved the audience. It was, it was all part of her power. At first I didn't hear and then couldn't believe what I was hearing. That could not be. Unperturbed, she responded, Oh, ask Dick. He, he was sitting next to me. Dick is a well-known professor in folklore studies in the Midwest. I, I never emailed him, probably because I thought the story so scandalous that the thought of raising it with a stranger made me hesitate. Reminding me of a story attributed to Lyndon Baines Johnson early in his political career in West Texas concerning a campaign for sheriff when someone suggested spreading the rumor that the opposition candidate fucked pigs. Nobody will believe that, was the response. Yeah, I watched him try to deny it. <laughs> so this is what I'm doing here. <laughs> I emailed the woman professor a few times when I got home, but I got no reply. Which I thought was strange. <laughs> to invoke energy at this point <clears throat> is to stake out a domain different to meaning and emotion while encompassing both. We feel the whack and the distinct thud like when the cloud hits and splits the pinata. We then try to pin words to that whack and that thud as if this can do more than really point to the ripples. To say the bad head went viral, viral, gets across the notion of self-generating energy like contagion during a plague. Fraser of the Golden Bow has a major category of sympathetic magic named contagious, just as Freud draws attention to contagion created by transgression in his book on taboo. But what then is contagion? Adorno and Horkheimer think of mimesis as involving a very material contagion which, borrowing from Deleuze and Guattari, we could call lines of flight, consisting of propulsions <coughs> encompassing aggregations of people and of imagery in states of becoming. The mimesis here is that of the image in the rumor, first the bad head, later the bare bottom. Going viral suggests a great wave, which we can think of as the energy generated by the fall of a waterfall. The same energy Rabelais evokes in his gargantuan displays of private body parts and functions, mixing rollicking humour alongside unspeakable violence. As Bakhtin never tires of pointing out, the dive into the never regions, nether regions of the body, the genitalia and the anus, and the dive into the nether regions of the soul is not to solidify or strengthen society's norms, but to do quite the opposite, to break with hierarchy and with order and generate life. That's Bakhtino Rabelais. Going viral, the bag head crackled with manner. But the mooning, what of that? Here we find ourselves at first on accustomed terrain, that of structural oppositions and transformations. But now the oppositions seem constituted in such a way that they undermine themselves in waves of transgressive energy, recalling Nietzsche's breath of empty space after the death of God. As the moon, female, is to the sun, male, 
So mooning has cosmic resonance, dis displacing the sun along the lines Robert Hertz depicted in his turn of the century essay on the global predominance of the right hand, in which he depicts the cosmic affiliation of the right side of the body aligned with the sun, good magic, law, and patriarchy, while the left side is identified with the moon, woman, bad magic, and illegality. What happens to this scheme when applied not to right and left, but to the top and bottom of the body, and is then transgressed, as with Mooning? First thing to note is how Mooning registers the febrile circuit of oppositions between face and genitalia, which insists that the face be uncovered while the genitals and anus be covered. However, with the bagged head transformed by rumour into Mooning, This is elegantly reversed by a procedure akin to what I have described in an essay on shamanic magic as a skilled revelation of skilled concealment. Freud writes of the animistic world of so-called primitive people passing into the unconscious layers of the psyche of the so-called civilized. Is the magical shamanism of the skilled revelation of skilled concealment at work in the memories of the audience an example of this, potentiated by the shamanic subject matter of my literature? Freud perceived an id-like primitive quality animating crowds. To the extent that this applies even to the intellectually focused audiences at a university lecture, would not this id quality be conducive to just such shamanic magic of skilled revelation, of skilled concealment? In this regard, hearken to Adorno's drawing attention to the primitive character of modern audiences at a classical music concert, even if they are subject to super ego controls or in Nietzsche's formulation to the instinctual control of the instincts. As with Homer's sirens, Odysseus, the audience is understood as maintaining a vigilant distance from the music, but unless bound to the mask, will succumb to the music's magic. Could something parallel to this mix of repression and play been at work in my talk, including my Hugo Ball performance? Ask yourself what it means. Ask yourself what it means to insert performance into a lecture. Is it not incitement to switching gears and letting the sirens loose? Above all, you might wonder at the comedy in all of this, which when all is said and done, lies just below the surface of academic lecturing. Mooning is not that far from the manner, what I call the manner shock, M-A-N-A shock that men feel when confronting women bearing the vulva to frighten off and shame men. This has been noted in Western East Africa, for example, and was described to me by women protesting changes threatened by a newly elected right-wing government, threatening changes to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in the 1970s. The women sat on the steps and flashed the police as they tried to remove the protesters, and initially, at least, the police recoiled. 
I've heard that Adorno himself was slashed while lecturing in Frankfurt at the time he took a hard line against what uh, he perceived as the libertarianism, libertinism of the, of the 60s. Daniela Gandolfo has analyzed at length the repulsion of the Lima police in Peru when a middle-aged street cleaner bared her breasts during her protests. I also recall the mathematics professor and rector of the National University of Columbia mooning a huge audience of angry students in 1993, and although five rode away with popularity to become mayor of Bogota. The mooning story unmasked, the mooning story unmasked the bagged head, by which I mean that the head and face were no longer understood to be bagged while instead the anus was unmasked, i.e. unclothed. As I wrote and rewrote permutations of this sentence, getting more and more confused, I concluded I was victim of some whirling geek of oppositions that would not let up, going faster and faster. Truly, translation and its bedfellow rumour are a mighty coupling. In place of the bad head, Moon presents the uncovered anus, or at least the promise and premise thereof, via the bed. Bugs. This is an especially dramatic form of unmasking, not only of the bad head, but of the head-face complex. As such, it is highly energizing, a veritable Niagara Falls there in the heart of Texas. But as I have tried to show in my early writings on defacement, unlike the trope of enlightenment, unmasking seems to not only perpetuate the masked visage, but fortifies the mysteries therein, bound as they are to revelation and concealment, faith and scepticism. It is thus a superior form of enlightenment. This is the more fundamental operation, not unmasking as tearing asunder the veil, concealing truth, but it's leading to more profound, let us say energetic, forms of masking, as is achieved by the blinding image of a bare bottom thrust in the face of the academic audience there in the Lone Star State. At least this is the situation is reported in what used to be called primitive societies of hunters and gatherers, when the mask is taken off the owner man, impersonating a spirit in Tierra del Fuego, the initiate's belief in spirits seems to be strengthened. Similarly, as regards the exposure of the secrets of the Nama flutes in Highland New Guinea, or with showing the novice that it is the bull roarer in northwest Australia and not the voice of the mother, the great mother, and so forth. Far from dispelling the sense of mystery, enlightenment in the form of unmasking seems to strengthen it. W.E.H. Stanner's appraisal based on his fieldwork begun in northwest Australia in the Daly River area in the 1930s is especially telling. Taking issue with the usual reductionist approach, he writes that some anthropologists call these fertility rites, but I prefer to call them cults of mystery. And he notes his informants talk of their religion as a joyous thing, with maggots at the centre. The story of the bag head is just such a joyous thing, with maggots at its centre. This story evolved into the dizzying depths of a bare bottom projected outward towards the audience like a face, 
calling to mind Victor Turner's description of monsters in the liminal period of male initiation rites in the 1950s in Central Africa. Here in the Lone Star State, we have a face that is an anus, and this anus has spread across the land, even to Dick in the Midwest. There is no back head anymore, there is no head either, just a naked butt. We have fallen. We have fallen as with Bataille's fall to what he paints as the absurdity, humour and grossness of the big toe, encompassing the irresolvable dialectic of the head and the foot, mind and matter, Hegel and Marx. Start again. We have fallen into the maw of sheer transgression where the oppositions are non-recuperable and non-redeemable. There is no dialectical Alfhaven synthesis or closure, just as there is none with Mooning Texas, other than that of a good story, which point blank refuses resolution. At the end of the day, what more do you want? Thank you. Um, 
addressing that issue? Um, this is the first time I've ever given this talk. I read it last week, and uh, I was inspired by a guy called Douglas Kahn in Sydney, who wants to put out a book on energy in art, at which there's a sort of apparently a resurgence of interest. Uh, it was strong apparently in the early 20th century. Uh, Duchamp uh, himself was a fascinated. Uh, X-rays were a big deal, Madame Curie, and, and so on and so forth, the fifth dimension. This stuff was in the air in the uh, 1900, 1920, and so forth. So now some people getting back into that. So it was appropriate for MIT, you know. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, uh, I've been thinking a lot about MANA, M-A-N-A, as a, as a which you sound like you know, it tends to be uh, dismissed and ignored um, by, for all sorts of reasons, one of which was uh, the way it was translated or reformed by uh, Levi-Strauss in his uh, introduction to Marcel Moss, and which he moved something that he thought was uh, uh, into a into a semiotic uh, uh, frame of, of, of thought. And um, I, uh, uh, for one reason or another, you know, wasn't very happy with that. And uh, I um, do think that I'm certainly open to uh, suggestions that much more could be done or more, be more precise about the place that Nana plays in this, uh, in this talk. Uh, but I, I do think it, it, it runs as a thread through the whole piece. Now, I don't, uh, I don't um, know if I agree uh, completely with you about the uh, Durkheim disappears or the society or the notion of society disappears. I, I don't think that that's uh, um, conceivable. I mean, it, it just, I don't, it's, it's just a problem with words. Okay, we can talk about the words, but I don't make a big deal out of it. I mean, if you don't like the notion of society as common with a nation state or, or tribal formation, and there's all these sort of interconnections and so forth, I'm fine with that. But there's something about generic notion of society, which is, I think, very helpful. Uh, and I do think that the uh, society is more than the sum of its parts and so forth is very important. Mrs. Thatcher probably even and the others have done. <laughs> and that's an interesting thing to take out. So um, I, uh, I'll think about the uh, sort of breaking apart of the, of the categories uh, next time I read it. I, I did take it, uh, I thought the confusion in the last, uh, uh, in my mind when I was trying to rework the face and the moon uh, is actually testimony to this big problem of uh, dialectic which comes unstuck. It, it, just, it just can't resolve them. It starts to get crazier and crazier. You start off with you know, a nice set of oppositions, and as you start to splice them together, they undo themselves. And that was, of course, the famous point of this, uh, or the point of this famous essay uh, by the time, 1930, 31, or something like that, to break up the Hegelian uh, idea of synthesis, and even the Marxist idea of materialism into irresolvable uh, oppositions, and the bottom line of that was to, well, this is a great generator of energy. This is the day pumps. 
And I thought it was interesting to think of works as, uh, as energy traps based on wit, W-A-T. And I liked very much uh, Joseph Boyle's honeycomb and his lemon and his use of the different materials for that reason. So um, I'll give it another thought. I'll try and work through the, the manner stuff. I read a beautiful manuscript. It's only a manuscript. You probably wouldn't like me talking about it too much uh, or with the talk. William Massarello of Chicago. Uh, he uh, showed me a four-chapter book on, on manner, which I thought was just, uh, just wonderful. And he worked on the power of images and advertising in India. And he's uh, uh, very taken with this scene. Uh, uh, and uh, he, he felt the urge to go back and examine the, the uh, meaning of mana. Uh, and he uses it in a colloquial way in conversation, you know, the way we talk about charisma or something. Uh, but he feels quite strongly that, yes, things admit an energy. Uh, you can, it's magical, you call it mana, you can call it mana, and it's fine. And then in the manuscript, he, he, you know, he crosses all the T's and dots all the I's and expounds on it. So I hope he gets that uh, manuscript published fairly soon. Thank you. What else do we have? Okay. It's probably going to make fun. I'm Julio. It is a, a scriptural question, but what do you think about this building? Which is like the closest thing. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, what do you think about the man? The what? What do you think about this building, which is supposed to be the building? Form? Yeah, the building itself. This one. This one. We tried it looked, Yeah, it's a Frank Gehry building. What, 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 what do you think about the building? What, what do you well, it's supposedly full of energy and its forms express. Energy and the well, I felt I felt very good in this building. So 
correctly, there's a sense, there's a, a, a space in which uh, there's a self-generating energy that is uh, not the same as C equals prime. There's a space, sacred space, negative sacred space that is uh, uh, that you describe in some of these uh, uh, ideas that there's a self-generating energy space or, or or source that is different from the capitalist C equals C prime. Um, and I'm thinking uh, about debt labor. Uh, Marx also calls capital debt labor and the metaphor uh, how that how that metaphor works. Um, to think about other forms of everyday labor that might or might not be, uh, that might be different today uh, from, from um, labor conceived under uh, capitalist production. I'm thinking about it, to, to clarify, I'm thinking about the Latin American context. A lot of people have been talking about the informal economy in Latin America and how that both uh, is, uh, is, uh, works with the neoliberal uh, uh, regime of production, but also against it at the same time. Right? So I'm thinking about what kinds of uh, spaces of labor specifically uh, might we look at uh, for these other forms of en uh, 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 generation energy that are different from uh, C equals C prime. Well, I'm glad you asked the question because that helps uh, with the first question a lot. Um, it helps me. Um, I think my use of the phrase self-generating is, is probably wrong. I'm interested in uh, uh, producing a surplus, producing uh, extra energy, not just maintaining yourself. Uh, maintaining yourself. And that's why I started to think about, always I thought about in this story of Texas, I always thought about, isn't it fascinating how there are certain phenomena in society uh, which produce energy out of sort of nothing, or sort of nothing. They create an extra. And that's really what this story is all about. And uh, capitalism seems to me to do something parallel, not different, parallel. C, C plus, or C, C prime, is to me an example of, cre of creating more out of less. And it does go through this strange, well, I guess it's a sleight of hand that involves my reading. Uh, the transformation of the use value of labor into exchange value, right? And that's, that's, that's the moment. Or you buy the labor, the exchange value of labor, put it to use and create more than what you started with. That, that sort of idea. So that, that's what's very much going on. I mean, I'm not that obsessed with the, with the Marxist stuff in this paper and the more in general, but it's, it's really quite wrong to think of city as a cause. It's the capitalism is an energy generating machine, even as it's using energy, right? It's producing or it's transforming surpluses. I mean, now I can see a big discussion getting involved here. Let me return to the origin, which goes back to the first question, I think. The, the, all the simple point of this talk, or a simple question I asked myself, is how do you get something out of nothing, or how do you get more out of something less? And I kept thinking about. The social bond. And how it's energetic and it creates energy, creates more energy all the time. And I was thinking this is very different to the limited knowledge I have of Newtonian physics, which is like you, can, you cannot get more energy out of the system. In fact, the system is dying, you know, I think they call that entropy. 
And I'm thinking, well, society is different. Society is amazing. Because <laughs> society is actually this incredible generator. Because the sun is this phenomenon which is producing all the energy as the physicists call it, and you and I uh, are calling it now after a few decades of, uh, of, of climatology and, and, and fear and, and, and global warming. And we know the sun is providing every bit of energy here, made all this stuff, and so on and so forth. The, the sun itself is this mighty orb which will disappear in I don't know how many trillions and trillions of years. Okay. But what about society itself? Society is like, in this sense, like a sun. I mean, it's producing <laughs> these fantastic forms of energy. That's as simple as that. And I thought that really interesting is the way gossip works. And the half said, and the way things are invented and elaborated, not by a great artist, filmmaker, whatever, just by person A talks to person B, talks to person C, and by some, don't know what else to call it, magic of elaboration through speech, telephone, whatever, something bigger. What was interesting in this case is to go into the specifics because they are fascinating specifics. You know, the relationship of the face to the rest of the body. Yeah. But it's as simple as that, Palmer. Uh, I'm just interested in the energy of social connections and how certain types of social connections at least are like generators. And this, I came up with some interesting phrases, like I was thinking about uh, Genet when he's about to steal with his friend Guy in the pawn shop. And I refer to them as little electric generators or solar panels or high little hydroelectric dams. You get the feeling from his writing, and I could have gone on and on. You know, that in these encounters, something new is put into the picture. High energy new stuff is brought into the picture. And it's, you can call it sex, you can call it crime, but they have to go together. Uh, and then you have to put it in the realm of the homosexuality and the, what he's writing in what, 40s, 50s, and so on and so forth. But it's, it's this uh, crackling that is so interesting to me. I, I'm not a retired freak, I used to be, but I found his, his, uh, I found his formulations quite helpful in thinking uh, about these sort of things. And when he talks about, he's so hard to read, but when he talks about wasting and dépense and all these things, it seemed to be pretty much the same, and you could equate, I never thought about it before, you could equate dépense or wasting, living in the fast lane, spending um, all your money you know, on Saturday night, gambling away all your money in one wild gesture, that, sort of, that was the sort of behaviors that he was. Warfare, he thought that was same, same, very negative example of the same thing. Yeah. So it's as simple as that. And I do see capitalism as a, I put it in the same realm. So if we talk about labor, we could talk about something very specific, I guess, taking a particular job, cutting cane, for example, or embroidery. But uh, uh, that's been done. And we also have these great metaphors. You know, we always say, oh, that person is bad energy, you know, that meaning provided such great energy. And you think of it as they're banal cliches, right? And I'm sort of saying they're not that banal. Uh, 
We probably have time for just two more questions left, Caroline and Greg. Okay. So Caroline Jones, art historian, living at, of course, the Center of the Energy Initiative here at MIT. Um, Loud. So I want to return to voice. You also said Kunst is Kapital, art is capital. Right? That was one of his slogans. And I want to ask you, would it make a difference if the light bulb isn't actually glowing? If it is actually glowing? If it is not actually glowing. Oh. If there are no... What's behind the question? No, in other words, do we produce the energy for voices? If, if we what? Do we, the viewers, the receivers, produce the mana, produce the energy of voices capital battery? I mean, it's not, it's it's just want, as an art historian, I just want people to know it's not actually wrong, right? I mean, in other words, yeah, yeah, it's point. It, it reveals yeah. the mana because, you know, it's not actually plugged into the grid. So yeah. this, is, this is to your point about the mask coming off, reinforcing. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay, so, about that. so I want to give you that. And um, I was thinking about Khan's project the whole the, time. Can you put the, uh, the yeah, yeah. I particularly like this first slide because I painted it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your name. Um, this is in the book, too, right? This, this, in, this is in your. Uh, I swear I saw this. No, no it's not in this. No, I like this. Okay. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> it's it wonderful to begin to think of that. And I was thinking about Khan's project through your talk. I'm writing about entropy for Khan's project, so we're on the same entropy. Khan's projects are on the same wavelength. But I just wanted you to think about the social quality of this kind of homo, homo favor, right? I mean, that, that we make something so someone else can look at it when we're not there. Yeah, no, I haven't right? that. No, that's the answer. Yeah. Hey, thank you. So you talk a bit more about that. Thank you, Caroline. Oh, hi. I'm Graham Jones from Anthropology. Um, one of the things I, I really liked about the talk was the way you combined your work as an ethnographer and then this anecdotal component of your life as a some academicus. And so I was wondering if you could speak in those two guises more to the themes of uh, gossip and rumor. And in particular, the ways that those kind of uh, under-the-radar discursive registers can be simultaneously sources of insight and confusion, order and disorder. Insight and what? Confusion. Uh, order you. and disorder. <laughs> structure and anti-structure. Yeah. Hegemony and counter-hegemony. Well, there's not too much confusion. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm glad you asked the question because I think it's a nice note to end on and not an easy one, uh, which is uh, I haven't got, got it right. It's, it, the, uh, I don't want to end up with something pathetic like it's good to have a story. <laughs> it is good to have a story. It's very important. Uh, I know what I wanted to say. You don't just have a good story, the one that beats you up. I mean, it's more than just a good story. It, it's like, it's, a, it's something that's very important and you think it'd be important to other people. Uh, it's having a story that talks to story, t 
telling. That would be my um, criteria. And that's where the, the so-called theory might come in. So you tell a story about theory, you tell a story about Adorno, um, his notion of what a, a bourgeois audience listening to classical music and what it means when they all clap at the end. That's this, it's sort of not a very profound point, you know. They all clap and that shows you the primitivism that they've been restraining. And Nietzsche has some great, uh, Nietzsche, who was also great, uh, adored music, uh, you know, he, he has a lot of very interesting remarks about the type of bodily discipline that are required to listen to uh, what we call classical music. But um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's sort of theory in a slightly different. All the throat clearing with Durkheim and uh, Maus and uh, Hubert and so forth at the beginning. Um, is, is a way of slowly edging into that. And also because I think most people, quite rightly, would feel manner is a ridiculous concept, or very foreign, or hokey, you know. Uh, so it's like there's a bit of uh, laying of the land there that has to, has to be done. But, uh, I usually find people who talk about writing and about stories um, are really boring, so we'll stop at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us where this may be published or, or what your plan is? No, I don't have a plan. No plan. This is one of those incandescent. Lemon light balls. Thank you for sharing your lemon light balls.